Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the efforts of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. You may hold a position of command with our special forces, forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional, forces which are growing in number and important and significant. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade. If freedom is to be saved, it requires a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. going to be discussing China, Russia, and what their governments are doing to subvert United States influence around the world, why they're doing it, and how they're doing it, and where they're doing it. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I had on with me to discuss these topics and many more, uh, H.P. Leffler. H.P. is a recently retired United States Army Green Beret served for 20 years uh, as an 18 Bravo uh, weapons sergeant and an 18 Fox uh, intel sergeant. So we talked about unconventional warfare. We talked about the Russians. We talked about the Chinese. We talked about news media or fake news and you know ways that you can kind of get around that and, and try and get the best information possible meaning just the news and not uh, a twist to it or not have it given to you from an angle to get a certain reaction. And and we just talked about many things and, you know, what the public expects of the new type of war that we're fighting in this uh, global war on terror in Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. But before we get into that, I just want to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by Abe's Bauman. 
For more than 20 years, the experienced attorneys have helped veterans across the country get the benefits they deserve. No one fights harder to protect the rights of veterans. Find out more at abesbauman.com slash vets. That's A-B-E-S, Bauman, B-A-U-M-A-N-N dot com slash vets. They're doing great work over there. For any veterans listening or if you know anybody in a situation where they might need some help, just go check them out. Uh, They have veteran attorneys and they really do the right thing. So with that being said, now I will play the conversation that I had with H.P. Leffer. Hey, how's it going, man? Thanks for coming on. Hey, uh, no problem, brother. It's good to be here. So today is um, 9-11. For me, it feels like the anniversary of 9-11, just like it comes a little quicker each year. Typically, I I would watch uh, the the ceremony on TV. I, I didn't catch it this year. But I'm not too far from the uh, the World Trade Center. I, I work not too far from there, so I, I have it in, in uh, eyesight when I'm on the roof of the building. And um, it's just kind of a surreal thing. It, it really had such a profound effect on not only America, but the entire world as it kind of set in motion uh, what's been taking place uh, for the last 16 years. Yeah, definitely. Um, or at least it's made what's been going on much more visible to kind of everybody. I mean, this the, the, the struggle has been going on for a long, long time. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's really been in the limelight since, you know, for the last 16 years. And when you say struggle, are you referring to like the um, you know certain groups from the Middle East and Africa kind of uh... – uh, you know, fighting and, and conducting these type of attacks uh, throughout the world? Well, I mean, I think if you look, um, you know, there, there's been contention between the United States or the Western powers and, you know, radical, um, you know, Islamofascism, for, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, you know, I'm, I am certainly not condemning the entire Islamic faith. Um, I, I think to do so is is ignorant to the point of lunacy. Um, but, you know, I mean, this this struggle between, you know, between terrorism, especially is, Islamic terrorism, has been going on for a lot longer than September 11th. I mean, I, you can point to several, you know, several terrorist examples. Um, it's just that September 11th hit home. September 11th had such a, a dramatic impact on the United States um, because it happened here, because so many of the casualties were, you know, your average American civilian just going to work, getting on an airplane, doing whatever, that, uh, you know, it had a much more, you know, profound impact. But it's, it's it certainly wasn't the opening bell. If anything, it was, um, you know, merely a kind of a, I guess, spectacular play in the game. Um, and it, but it definitely changed a lot of lives, myself included. Yeah, the, there was definitely, uh, I mean, like you said, there was a lot of things happening prior to that. Um, but, you know, the U.S. government, you know, the, there were some guys like the, uh, you had the first World Trade Center bombing and they had like a small uh, team of federal agents 
kind of tracking those guys down. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they happen to be connected to uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the kind of the mastermind of the attack or or was involved in, in a lot of the planning and organizing of the 9-11 attacks. Um, but it, it almost seems like it, it didn't, they didn't take it. I'm not going to say they didn't take it seriously, but it, it wasn't at like the forefront of kind of uh, a foreign policy uh, for the political leadership, uh, so to speak. Well, yeah, I mean, the Clinton administration had different priorities. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to turn this into some political circus, but, you know, the Clinton administration had different priorities. Um, the Clinton administration was, if you look at it from a certain point of view, the first post-Cold War presidential administration, and they had their policies were much more domestic in nature. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's fine. It's just, it, it didn't get the attention. And, and, you know, it's easy to sit here with the benefit of hindsight and say, all oh, they should have known. Right. Um, you know, working, working in, in, you know, in, in the intelligence world, doing these things is very much like trying to do a jigsaw puzzle while blindfolded. The problem is, is that you've got five jigsaw puzzles all in the same box and you don't know until you, you know, you don't know until you take the, the blindfold off, whether you've got everything, everything right. So it's, um, you know, it's easy, you know, 2020 hindsight, oh, they should have known this, they should have known that, and they should have known whatever. And, you know, of course, that's part of the, the lessons learned process. But, yeah, I mean, there were certain – there are certainly things that, in retrospect, we should have picked up on. But, that, I mean, that can go all the way back to, you know, the Reagan administration and how we handled um, our withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, you know, at, at the end of the Soviet occupation. Um you know, there's any number of things that we could have done differently, but our priorities were in the wrong place. The Reagan administration's priorities was the Soviet Union. Uh, whatever happened anywhere else was a sideshow at best and a circus at worst. Um, you know, the Clinton administration's priorities were much more domestic in nature. So something like international terrorism um, was not something that the Clinton administration was really prepared to engage. And, you know, we saw that in a number of, you know, a, a number of times. Um, and then, you know, it kind of all came home to roost 16 years ago today. And the, the United States, um, for, for better and worse, um, and the world also for better and worse, has, has never been the same since. Yeah, it really changed the kind of the the way we view security and and things like that. I mean, before security at airports was compared to now was like nothing almost, and um, you know that that's part of what the issue was. And it's, you know, let's beef that up. And but you know, like you said, it's, a lot of these things have been happening, especially in like Africa and and parts of the Middle East for a long time. Oh yeah, I mean, there's you know the marine bomb, the marine barracks bombing. The Cobar Towers attack, the attack right. on the American embassies. You know, it, it, hell, you could you could throw Pan Am, the Flight 103 bombing in there. You could throw, I mean, any number of terrorist incidents. USS Cole, for example, all all of these things going. I mean, the the, the plane hijackings in the 80s. 
all, all of these things were viewed through the various lenses that we were looking at the world through and um and 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 it all again it all sort of came home to roost 16 years ago today right and um with the trump getting elected and then this whole thing about is there's a potential collusion with russia uh you know people People on the left are, are, yeah, yeah, they they colluded. People on the right, no, it's not possible. But it does look like there's been uh, relations have kind of soured with the Russian government. Um, as as the Russian government is, they're doing things globally to expand their power and influence. And the United States having the role that the United States has in the world they're going to bump heads in a lot of different places uh, as they have similar goals and maybe uh, some similar methods to achieve them and some different. So, and, and then the same thing goes for China as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, th- th- there's been this a lot going on the last couple of years. Uh, this has kind of been uh, uh, brewing, I guess. Uh, and then it kind of came to light with uh, the, the incidents in the Ukraine and the uh, annexation of the Crimea uh, you know, it really kind of um, put uh, Russia's neighbors on notice, and you know they've been kind of vamping up their military exercises and, and budgets and everything. Uh, you're kind of prepping for a worst case scenario type of deal. Yeah. The um, well, the Russians and the Chinese are are going to have two distinctly different ways of of, of approaching this. Um, the Russians have a, a serious economic problem that has been a serious economic problem for Russia for as long as Russia's been Russia, um, in that they don't have a true warm weather port. Um, and every single incident of Russian expansionism can be tied directly or indirectly to seeking that warm water port. Uh, especially on the Atlantic or with access to the Atlantic, um, the, the, their move back into Crimea, their move back into Ukraine was a, an, an attempt. I mean, it was an attempt on several on several levels, but not insignificantly was to reclaim the warm weather port that Stalin had given up to the Ukrainians um, when the, when Ukraine was just another you know, Russian or Soviet Federation. Um, the other thing too, is that the Russians, especially those who were influenced by a certain faction of the Soviet empire and the Soviet machine, um, have a bit of I don't want to call it an inferiority complex. I think that's too simple. I think they feel like they have something to prove, however, on the world stage. I think they feel like Russia in general and the Soviet Union um, kind of became the laughing stock of, you know, of, of the world. And when you look at the economic situation that Russia plunged into and you look at, I mean, even continues. I mean, in, in Russia, 
in nowhere else in the world is there as much income disparity as there is in in Russia. More something like eighty percent of the the GM the GNP in Russia is controlled by something like five percent of the people. So either you're a multi-billionaire oligarch or you're being paid a nickel a day to be someone's shoes. Um, you know, they but they, they feel humiliated and they want to redeem themselves. They feel like they should be a great power and they want to redeem themselves. And Putin, I think, wants to be the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And the only way he can do that, really do that, is by is by drawing the United States into a into you know into a conventional up and up fight and beating us. So that that's so you know all of these things you know and and, and I'm not I, I you know I'm not a you know a Russian analyst or anything. This is just how you know I look at the news and I see what's going on and I put these things together and this is sort of what we come up with. You know they're they're playing a bit of long game. Yeah, they're playing a bit of. Um, you know they 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 can't just roll the tanks into Western Europe and and call it good. I mean, one, they're probably not really ready for that, and two, they have to position themselves to be geopolitically acceptable. They have to they have to make it happen in such a way that. At, at worst, the UN will just sort of say, oh, well, we got nothing to do with this. The Chinese, on the other hand, the, the concept of long game for the Russians and the concept for, of long game for the Chinese is wholly different. Um, when you look at how tied into our economy they are, the only thing worse for the Chinese than losing a war than losing in a war with us would be beating us in a war. So the Chinese, I don't think, want to fight. I think the Chinese are waiting. They're, they're positioning themselves. They're moving the pieces. And they're waiting for they're waiting for us to collapse on our own. Thus allowing them to win the war without firing a shot. You know, you've seen some extraordinarily brazen Chinese activity, the construction of the artificial islands in the South China Sea, for example, yeah. you know, the blatant disregard of international court of the international courts, um, the overt threatening of especially the Filipinos, um, you know, the, the Japanese and and quite frankly, from where I sit anyway, the, the Chinese are using they're, they're using the North Koreans as a way to achieve what they're that what they want below the radar they're key they're using the north koreans are you know the, the north korean saber rattling continues and the chinese are benef- are the ones benefiting from it yeah absolutely you know and, and you know if you look at how the chinese have done business if you if you want to name a country that's benefited most from our continued involvement in afghanistan it's china you know, with, with us being tied down in the region, you know, with, with us being bogged down in that, I mean, the, the Chinese, I mean, if you if you really look at when the surge forward in all of this activity in China started, it started when, you know, while we were in, in bogged down in Afghanistan. So, 
You know, those two are are very definitely things. I think we're most likely to see, you know, to see shots fired in Europe, especially uh, once the Russian-Chinese natural gas pipeline is completed. Um, You know, I think that will allow the Russians to turn off natural gas to Western Europe without economic consequence to themselves. And um, I don't know. We'll see. It's going to be a very interesting time to be alive, I think. Yeah, definitely. And and I know, uh, you know, out, out of all the world leaders, I mean, obviously for any world leader, you need to have, if you want to be successful, you, you have to, you know, be, a, be a, a smart person or have some decent amount of intelligence, but you also need to have, a, a good team around you of advisors and everything. But I think in a singular sense, I think Putin is probably pretty sharp uh, individually, you know, given his background and, and uh, his training and everything. Um, and, and I think you, you hit it on the head when you said that, you know, there's some sort of um, almost in, like inferiority complex there where they feel like they need to prove themselves to the world. And I, I forget w- what it was. It might've been a, um, a reporter with Time Magazine. I don't remember exactly, but uh, a couple of years ago, they spent, you know, some time with Putin, uh, you know, as he as he done whatever he does, you know, in, in his kind of daily activities. You mean riding riding a bear? Yeah, exactly. through the forest with no yeah. shirt on, firing yeah. an AK forty seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and what he said was what he felt like. Uh, after, you know, he kind of looked back on, on his time there and, you know, looking over his notes and, and, and everything they'd done in terms of interviewing and whatnot, is that he got the impression that Putin feels like the West kind of looks down on Russia. And he felt like that is like the single most infuriating thing to Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, as a person. And and thus that kind of pushes a lot of his... um activities or his thinking and, and, and uh, how he should engage the West or, or whatever. Um, and then on China, the, everything you listed was, was I think, pretty accurate, and I agree. But as well as they, they were doing a lot of, like, cyber attacks on American companies and, like, stealing information. I think there was, like, a, a DOD hack a while ago um, where, you know, a lot of information was was uh made available to hackers and and I, I think they really play the long game and or at least they're they're attempting and they're positioning themselves well to do that. Uh especially like you said with those with the islands that they're they're building and they're putting like, you know, military bases on them. Um they're having issues with some of those smaller Southeast and East Asian countries like like Vietnam, like the Philippines. Um but but I, I know recently uh, with the the Filipino president, they've kind of made some ground in in, in having better relations, right? Um, I I haven't seen that. I, I'm not saying it's not possible. Um, you know, if if it's recent in the news, I'm I may have missed it. Or, or at frankly, least, at frankly, least. I'm having a real hard time with the news these days because right. I just uh, you know you t- you turn on the news and it's you know, it, you know, any of your mainstream news sources, it's, you know, anti-Trump shrieking 
and then you turn on, you know, your other option and it's fawning adoration. And I don't really want either of those things. Right. Um, so I tend to watch good morning football in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting point, you know, on the news thing, it's like at this point to get good information, you, you kind of have to go to a bunch of different places and, and, and just piece together uh, the picture yourself or the puzzle yourself, you know? Yeah. Well, my dad tells a story and I don't know where he heard it or if it's true or allegorical, but, uh, you know, a, a Supreme Court justice was asked um, when he got gets to the office every day, what's the first piece of paper? You know, what's the first piece of the newspaper that he looks at? And he says the sports section, you know, and the, the interviewer was was confused. And, well, what do you mean with all these things going on in the world and you're a Supreme Court justice? Shouldn't you be paying a little bit more attention to this or to that or whatever else? And, the Supreme Court justice says, well, in the sports section, it's the only section of the paper where the journalists are actually still trying to do their job. And that, you know, unfortunately, um, that's that's how I see it. So I watch good morning football in the morning and then I go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's um, it's it's gotten to a point where it's like. Objectivity is found upon you know like you you can't have an opinion about something and and that be your opinion on that specific subject like if you say xyz about something or you're a liberal or if you say xyz about this and you're you know you're thrown on the conservative right wing uh you know group so it's 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 kind of uh i guess sad in a way you know we've kind of gotten to this point you know this climate I put up a post on social media about nine uh, eleven and you know kind of remembering from that you know my time on that day when it happened because I was in Manhattan when it happened mm -hmm. and um, I I think I was like in seventh grade or something like that eighth grade I don't remember but you know I remember thinking like this is crazy like I can't even believe this is happening right and then mm -hmm. there's so much like negative that comes with it you know people are, are they can't contact their loved ones people are missing uh you know families are feeling the worst that kind of thing but there was some positive to it in, in how people came together and i think as a country we need a or we need leadership that at least will attempt to to guide us in a direction of unity uh, versus kind of separating us, you know, and, and it's, it's difficult with today's political climate, but. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, I take great solace in the understanding that on December 6th, 1941, the greatest generation of Americans was just as divided, just as scared, just as everything else as we seem to be. And while the unity that that generation managed to achieve lasted significantly longer than the unity that um, our generation was able to achieve. A lot of that had to do with, I mean, a, a lot of that had to do with the fact that that generation, the unity they, you know, they, they managed to achieve saw them, you know, saw them at the end of at the end of the day with an unequivocal victory. And the nature of warfare, the nature of 
warfare no longer being the exclusive province of the nation state has led to, I mean, you're not unequivocal victories. That's not a, that's, that's not going to be a thing. Um, you know, how do you, you know, in, in the era of, Uh, you know, in the in the era of, you know, geopolitical do-gooding, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, you, you can't just roll in, you know, crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of the women, and and then go back home, have a have a you know a shot of bourbon and smoke a cigar and call it a day. That's not the way the world works anymore. That's not the way war is anymore, and. And so, it, you know, this concept of this unequivocal victory, it's like trying to hold sand. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the national psyche has adapted to that. I do, you know, and, and, and I, I think there's a, a large amount of misunderstanding about the nature of modern war that leads to a lot of frustration, especially on the part of people who aren't involved. And so it's, you know, it, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult cocktail to, to come up with. How do we, how do we do this? How do we, you know, how, how do we achieve this victory? Because I think I, I really want to believe that America is everything we've been promised that it is. Um, I would really like to believe that all of this stuff going on is just growing pains. It's just, it's a frustration with a lack of clear victory. It's a whatever, but it, it kind of feels like it might be more than that. And, and, you know, we'll, I guess time will tell. Yeah, that's a pretty good point about kind of the understanding of victory and and what it means. I mean, you know, it, it, like you said, the days of uh, of nation versus nation warfare is, is kind of over. I mean, not that it's necessarily over as a, a larger war couldn't happen, but mm -hmm. you know what what's been going on really has been small conflicts and um, and and you're absolutely right. I think people just need to understand certain realities of that kind of warfare, but being so far removed from it in terms of, um, a very small amount of people serving in the military. And then, um, you know, the, 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 the news media kind of showing what they want about it, kind of angling a certain thing, a certain way to, to get a certain reaction. Uh, I think that really kind of throws things off and, um, Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the news media, quite frankly, should be ashamed of themselves. Um, and, and that's it's been going on for a while. And, you know, it's 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 especially bad now. Um, but much like any other much like any other organization like that, they're not going to accept external criticism. You know, that's that criticism. They're going to have to they're going to have to figure that out for themselves. And 
I think the only way they're going to is if we all like if, if we the people all just stop watching and listening and reading. But what you know, that's a not likely, and b where does that leave us? That leaves us even more, you know, even more uneducated about the world that we live in than we currently are. So I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe what it needs is a new generation of, of journalists. You know, maybe journalism needs to no longer be the, the exclusive calling of, you know, of American leftists. You know, maybe it calls for, you know, maybe the answer is large investment in mainstream media by people who are by people who are maybe not so left leaning and in order to affect the editorial boards, who knows, but it's, uh, I would very much like to see the, the media come back to a much more centrist or at least whether, or, or at least be professionally centrist, um, whether their personal political alliances lie on the left or the right. I, you know, that's not the job of a reporter is not to take sides. It's to, report the news yeah i I think that's part of it is that kind of the the opinion aspect of it or piece of it it has really kind of taken over uh versus just saying hey this happened uh you know x x and y happened and and you know we'll see you tomorrow night um yep so so kind of um moving forward Mm-hmm. Uh, you you served for a number of years in the United States Army. Uh, can we talk about some of that? Like, where did you start your career, and and where did you end up? Absolutely. Um, I started my career as an eleven X-ray with airborne option at Fort Benning, Georgia, on October second, nineteen ninety-five. Um, I had I had been shown I'd been shown the door at. Uh, at, at the University of Minnesota, um, and informed that, you know, apparently there was more expected of me than sitting around my dorm room drinking beer and chasing women. <laughs> um, and so I, it, and so I enlisted. Um, I've never really had the conversation with my parents about how that was received. Um, I know it's not what they sort of hoped would happen. Um, I think my, my mother especially would have preferred that I move home, stay at, you know, stay in my room, go to the community college, get my grades back up and then go somewhere else and finish my degree and go on to great and glorious things. Um, that was not how I saw it. However, um, I uh, I went and joined the army and wanted well, I wanted to be in a ranger regiment. And uh, unfortunately, in 1995, people there weren't slots in ranger regiment for for infantrymen, and so I ended up in the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, I was uh, I ended up as 11 Charlie, an indirect fire infantryman. Um, which, well, I didn't enjoy it at the time. Definitely set me up for things to things to come. Um, I changed my MOS to eleven Bravo and PCS to Fort Richardson, Alaska, 
um, where I was in 1st Battalion, 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment. Um, and after that, I had sort of decided to hang it up. And on, again, 16 years ago today, I was on leave between um, Fort Richardson and going back to Fort Bragg for what I truly thought were going to be my last 18 months in the Army. And the phone rings at about, I don't know, six in the morning. And it's my grandmother. And I answer, I'm like, hello. She says, a plane flew into the World Trade Center. We're under attack. Well, like probably most of everybody else who heard it before they saw anything about it, I assumed it was a drunken Red Sox fan in a Piper Cub or something. <laughs> so I, I told my, I told her, I said, Grandma, I'm sure we're not under attack. She says, well, get up and look from the news yourself, dumbass, and then hung up on me. <laughs> uh, this is the nature of my family. And so I got up just in time to watch the second plane hit. And, uh, you know, I knew right then and there that my world had changed. I didn't know the, the magnitude of it yet. Um, I couldn't even conceive of the magnitude of it yet. Spent all day standing in line with my dad to try and give blood. They took my dad's blood, but my, when they found out I was in the service, they told me that they figured mine would be needed right where it was. And, uh, I, I got on the, I grabbed my orders and found the phone number that you're supposed to call if you have an issue. And I called it and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm on orders to the 82nd. Do I need to report in like now? And the, uh, the voice on the other end of the phone said, no, everybody, you know, the army knows where you are. If they need you to get there, you know, you'll, they'll, they'll get a hold of you. And, you know, of course, you know, in retrospect, the, the hubris that is required to call the army and it's like, do you need me to show up so we can go to war now is absolutely mind numbing. Yeah. Like <laughs> if I, I can't like, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, thanks for calling. Leftler, yeah. Yes. Specialist left the entire airborne establishment cannot swing into action until you get your ass in the saddle. So <laughs> would you please, would you kindly would you kindly heed the, heed the call of the trumpet, please? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So I reported to Bragg, and uh, I mean, it was insane. Like entire platoons of riflemen at every gate. Everything was locked down. It was like the entire post lost its mind. And, uh, and then I got there, and there was like, oh, we're going to do expert infantryman's badge training. And I just looked at my boss, and I was like, what? No, we're, no, we're going to go to the range, and we're going to train, and we're going to deploy and swing the bat for Jesus. That's what we're going to do. He's like, no, we're going to do EIB training. I'm like, okay, all right, well, okay. Um, and then shortly after that, we started sending troops to Afghanistan, and I'm sitting at Fort Bragg. And on the day that Operation Anaconda kicked off in the Tora Bora Mountains, I was on Fort Bragg picking up garbage in area in training area hotel hotel, which based on the garbage I was picking up had not been used since World War II. Um, oh, M1 Garand stripper clips and Thompson submachine gun magazines and C ration cans. I'm like, are you kidding oh, me? Sis? Yeah. And so um, that that next day, 
I told my brother that, that afternoon, actually, I told my boss, I said, Hey, I'm not going to be at work tomorrow. He's like, Oh, on the contrary, my friend, you, you are. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to go do my SF physical. I've had enough of this. So I went and did my physical. And in February of 2002, I went to special forces selection, um, followed by the, the Q course. I was, I graduated as a eight, as an 18 Bravo weapons NCO and was sent to 10th group, um, at Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, did three tours to Iraq there. Um, then was assigned as a survival instructor and eventually the survival detachment, non-commissioned officer in charge at the, uh, SEER school at the John F. Kennedy special warfare center in school. Uh, after that, I, I had the opportunity to serve with first battalion, 10th group in Stuttgart, Germany. My boss at that SEER had gotten a, he was a 10th group guy and he had gotten a company to be the Sergeant major of in Germany. And he came to me and said, Hey, you want to come to Germany with me? I hadn't really thought of that at the time. At the time I was looking back looking forward to getting back to Colorado, but it occurred to me, I was like, you know, when I'm 60, I don't want to be able to look in the mirror and tell myself you had the opportunity to live in Europe and you didn't do it. Right. Uh, so I got to, I, I got to Germany and everything I thought would be the case about Germany was not. I kind of thought it'd be just like America, but in German, no. So it took a bit of getting used to. I was supposed to be on, or well, let me back up. When I got to Germany and I reported in, most of the company was in Afghanistan because 110 was supporting the ISAF, the ISAF soft mission. And we were working with, you know, other European special operations units with ISAF, with ISAF in, in Afghanistan. But one of the teams that was spinning up to deploy, the team sergeant was Daniel Slim Adams. And Dan Adams had been a third group guy but he and I had served together in the 501st in Alaska. And so we knew each other and I showed up in the company. I was an experienced 18 Bravo. He had a very young team and he asked me if I would be his senior weapons guy. Um, and I said, yeah, of course, I'm just going to need a couple of weeks to get my, you know, to, to settle my affairs. And he said, okay. And we, you know, we started everything down that, down that path. And I started getting a, the team's weapon stuff set. And then he, he calls me up one day and he says, Hey, the Sergeant major has spoken. He's like, you're a halo jump master. Halo jump masters go to halo teams. So you're going to be on two, four, you know, thanks man. And, and I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. And then 10 days after that, actually two on on September 13th, um, Slim Adams was killed in Afghanistan. Oh, wow. Which was kind of a kick in the nuts. Um, and so, so I was the, I was the senior weapons guy for a while on ODA 024 using the old numbering system. The new numbering system would be ODA 0124. And then Sergeant Major comes to me and says, Hey, left. 
we're really short on 18 foxes. I said, okay. He says, would you consider going to the 18 fox course? And I said, sure, I'll go to the 18 fox course. So I went back to, went back to North Carolina for four and a half months for the 18 fox course, came back, deployed, and then the team was already gone. I immediately deployed to Afghanistan. came back from Afghanistan and pretty much turned right around and went back to Afghanistan to do some, to do some other stuff. And then came back, was in Germany the rest of the time in Germany. And then, um, took an assignment to be an ROTC instructor. I thought it would be something different. I thought it would be something new. I thought it would be an opportunity to, to kind of chill out. And it, it, it was definitely different. I, I thought I was going to have a very tangible and positive impact on the next generation of junior officers. I guess time will tell if I, if I was successful in that. But while I was there, I made the decision that I'd, I'd had quite enough of this. Thank you very much. And decided to retire. And as of, one September, 10, 10 days ago, I am now retired from the Army. Oh, right. I, I remember you in the process, man. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks, man. So what's that a total of, of uh, how many years in? Uh, 21 years, 10 months, so many days. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a long time, and... and um... You know, especially being in special forces, you know, when we're talking about uh, understanding, you know, the nature of the, the, the conflict of what we're fighting today and and, and uh, whatnot, that's kind of the bread and butter of what uh, Green Berets do. Um, and just a quick question, the, the you going back to the 18 Fox course, is, is that kind of unusual for a guy who's already you know had a couple of deployments and whatnot? No, not at all. Um, in fact, 18 Fox is uh is not a basic special forces MOS. So you have to, you know, you, you go to selection and you go to the Q course in one of the four basic MOSs. And then, um, if you want to be an 18 Fox, you then have to go back to the, to the course. Um, oh, okay. I, I didn't know, at, you know afterwards. So, okay, yeah. So, so as a, you know, as a green beret and, and, um, you know, multiple deployments, uh, I guess Iraq, Afghanistan are, are, are a little bit different in um, in the nature of, of of you know fighting over there or whatnot. But what, absolutely, you know what what you guys specialize in specifically, Green Berets, uh, is unconventional warfare and you know countering or empowering group groups in, in countries where where there is conflict. Um, Yeah, and and that's pretty much what the conflict is today. is is really just unconventional warfare, small groups of uh, individuals. They they fire a shot, drop their rifle, blend in with the local populace. It's it's a different kind of uh, ball game from what they were doing in in World War Two or even Korea. Um, I guess Vietnam was kind of the beginning of the of the of that fighting style, but also uh, the the terrain in Vietnam made it unique in itself well actually 
guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare is, well, been is much older than that. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and, and special forces actually gets its start from the, the Jedbergs and the OGs and the, the uh, detachment 101 and 202 of the office of strategic services. Right. Um, it's just, it's a lot easier. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to be the gorilla than it is to try and counter it. Right. You know, you, you really need to understand the culture that you're dealing with. And that it's one thing to understand, say, the French or the Belgians or, you know, it's a whole other ball game to try to understand, you know, the Iraqis or or the, the Afghans. You know, especially getting involved in an internal struggle. Um, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not like even dealing with Afghanistan in the eighties where we were helping them throw the Soviets out. Um, it's not like jumping into France to help them throw out the Germans. I mean, this was the stuff going on in, I mean, we were the invaders. We were the ones that they were going to see as, you know, as the army of occupation. So to, to even, I mean, honestly, to achieve what we did is, is nothing short of remarkable. Um, uh, we, we did a lot of things right in Afghanistan. A lot of things wrong, but a, a lot of things right. And I'm, I guess if there's one, one thing that I hope we can take from our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan is that we, even if it's just on the special operations side of the house, can take the lessons we learned there and apply them going forward. Expecting, you know, expecting the, the big time decision makers at DOD level to do that is probably asking too much. But, you know, hope springs eternal in the human heart. Yeah. And, and, and that's part of the, the issue is, is some of the um, in, in some regards, the top down approach isn't quite the right approach versus you know the the bottom up approach where the, where the guy on the ground say the you know special forces captain uh who's trained in that type of warfare uh for his entire career and and then is fighting it on the ground i mean there were examples of uh successful unconventional warfare strategies early on in the afghanistan war and and, and throughout it but uh, i i remember it, like uh maybe it was at 2002 or like really early where ODAs were having major success living in in villages with alongside the Afghanis and, and training them and uh, countering the Taliban, not just by gunfighting, although that was a part of it, but also by working with the local population, uh, figuring out what they needed, you know, helping rebuild the towns and, and that kind of thing. And it was really effective. And then I, I think some of it... Um, some of it kind of changed up when it became a, you know, we're doing this this way, no matter what you say. And, and that kind of threw things off in a way. Well, there is a book written by, and, and I can't remember his name, uh, Garnier, maybe. Um, but right. he had been the C he had been, he'd been the CIA station chief in Islamabad, Pakistan from 1999 to 2002. And he states that there was essentially 
two separate American-Afghan wars. The first one was in a ringing success for the United States and the Western Allies. Um, and in that one, we saw the marriage of special operations um, and you know paramilitary forces of the intelligence community um, kind of coupled with American precision air power in order to achieve these great things. Uh, I mean, from the day, I mean, the, the book is titled 88 Days to Kandahar, and it's, I mean, it, it, it references the fact that 88 days after September 11th, we had kicked the Taliban out of, out of Kandahar. Um, and that things started to go sideways once we started committing, you know, conventional American combat troops to the, you know, to, to the contest. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, obviously he was in a much better position to observe this than I was, but, and, and you know, frankly, by the time I got to Afghanistan, I, you know, it, it was, it was the way it was. So it was very, it's very difficult to, you know, to say that, yes, there was better than or better, whatever. I mean, it's, it's just tough to tell. I, you know, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't have the pedigree to start making commentary about, you know, decisions at that level or, or the, you know, the nature of the fight. All I know is that when I was in Afghanistan, the Afghans knew we were leaving and they treated us like they knew we were leaving. And so it was very difficult to accomplish anything, especially things that we needed Afghan cooperation for because they knew we were leaving. Right. So, so to them, it's just like, you know, why am I going to risk everything when these guys are going to leave at some point and I still have to stay here and deal with these guys? Yeah. And I mean, you know, and not only that, I think that in both Iraq and Afghanistan, Afghanistan is the more glaring example. We expected too much too fast. I mean, the way I put it is this. From the day that Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown until the time the United States could say that we are a reasonable, self-governing nation state was about 100 years. 100 years on when we had the whole continent to ourselves and again i'm not i'm not going to get into you know how native americans were treated i'm i'm keeping this at the you know i'm keeping this at the the, the big conceptual level now um, we had a continent all to ourselves we had all the natural resources we could possibly imagine we had all the room we needed um, americans were at least as well educated as anybody else was anywhere else in the world um, we had better food we were healthier and it still it took us 100 years we expect a country with, at least in the case of, Afghan of Afghanistan, 3% mean literacy rate in the face of the most malignant insurgency the world has ever seen with – I mean they have natural resources, but they can't access them right. to, to stand up a Jeffersonian democracy in a decade. Oh, okay. This, this makes sense. 
And when they were on, when they were unable to do that or unwilling to do that or whatever, we chose to view that as them. I, I don't know, not being grateful to us, not being whatever and enthusiasm for the effort in Afghanistan, you know, waned quickly. And so it's, I, I, I think we reached too far. I think we tried to, in, you know, to, to impose too much of our cultural norms on their culture. You know, you don't, you don't turn the Titanic on a dime. Um, cultures don't change overnight. And so, you know, every single thing that we did, maybe even especially the things that we did, that we did with the most benign intent, were viewed by some of the Afghans that we probably could have won over as threats to their culture. And therefore, which is one, you know, one of the reasons why we were never really able to stomp out the Taliban and to, you know, we, we, we never won the war of ideals because we didn't understand the language in which the Afghans needed to be engaged. You know, we, we didn't understand the, 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 the way in which support for what we were trying to do could be won. And that's that's unfortunate because I mean we lost, we dumped a lot of money into Afghanistan we lost a lot of people in Afghanistan and I mean things are still going on in Afghanistan so yeah it's you know it's it's interesting because when uh, after the towers fell and and the Bush administration they said you know we're, we're going to embark on a global campaign to with the world of what we're calling terrorism, right? This, uh, you know, all these groups, the, there's loose alliances, but they're all rooted in the same evil ideology and we're going to go after them. And, and part of the entire kind of, uh, underlying theme of it was that everything would be like quick, like it would be fast. We'll go in, hit them hard and pull out. And, I think, you know, when you were make earlier when we were talking about people not understanding the nature of the conflict, I think you just really hit it on the head because, like you said, it took America decades and decades and decades to to finally come to a point where, you know, we figured it out, or at least to a certain degree. And then on top of that, you have these people of Afghanistan, the Pashtuns, they're like the, or they are the oldest tribal group on the planet that's that's still around so these people have customs and ways of living that are, are way older than the united states and it's like it's it's hard enough to and to get things going for what what our our version of what a country should be and freedom should be in a, a democracy right but to then impart that on a, a a group of people that have been around for way longer than we have and are, are are kind of steeped in their way of life. It, it really was unrealistic, and I think that that's where we kind of met problems in Afghanistan. And um, 
again, it's 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 just what we're kind of continuing on this path. It's like, are are we ready for a commitment that could take you know years? You know, we're talking you know fifty years, sixty years. I don't think we are. And then, so then the, the question becomes, what are we still doing there? And then it becomes you know, politics get involved and uh, and that kind of thing. So it, it's it's really tricky and. Uh, hopefully, the uh, some of the people advising the president understand some of these things. Yeah, well, um, I guess we'll. I guess we will see. Um, you know, it's 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 one thing to it's one thing to say, "Hey, I hope this happens." It's a whole other ball game. To, you know, for it to happen, um, you know, well, I guess, I guess we'll see. I mean, there are people out there who are brilliant in the in these areas, um, and it would be really nice to see, just, you know, to it'd be really nice to see the uh, the president or any president engage their services. Or, or listen to them. I mean, a lot of these people are still in uniform, so they technically already work for the government. But, you know, that that's that. Now, now we're talking about things that are so far beyond my pay grade and so far beyond anything that I have any experience in that now, you know, you know, now we might might as well be talking about lightsaber design. I mean, whatever it is. <laughs> Okay, so kind of moving forward now, would you be okay with sharing a story with the audience uh, from your time in the service? Could be a time that you were deployed or in training or something that was kind of profound to you? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to. I don't, I don't really have a lot of like, you know, I, I don't have a lot of really good stories, um, but you know, for people listening who are just starting out in the military or who are considering a military career, I will say that one of the things you will find is that you you will learn a new definition of the word ridiculous. And by that, I don't necessarily mean all the stupid stuff you're going to have to deal with. I mean, there'll be there'll be plenty of that. But you will find yourself sitting at a bar one day thinking about the day you just had and realizing that. That was some of the most insane whatever it was that you can imagine. And then you'll go to work the next day and, you know, specialist schmuckatelli will do something even more <laughs> insane or you know, your boss will say something just when you think you've heard the dumbest thing that the world has ever heard. Your boss will say something that is even dumber or the the private that you're completely convinced was born and raised under high tension power lines will say to you the most profound and amazingly intelligent thing you've ever heard another human being utter in your life. <laughs> and it'll, it'll turn out that that private isn't stupid. He's just a whole lot smarter than you are. Um, you will find friendships that right now you can't even imagine. Um, and for every day, 
and you know, for every day that you sit and wonder like, what the hell am I doing this for? You will, there will be a day where you'll look around and nod your head and be like, yes. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time. Um, and I guess here's, here's a good story. I, I, the guy, when I was in Colorado, there's a guy that lived down the hall from me uh, after I sold my house and was living in an apartment. And he was the manager of a cell phone store somewhere in town. I don't know which one and I don't really care. But he asked me because he very rarely, he never saw me in uniform. He asked me what I did for a living. I told him I was in the army. And he's like, oh, I can never be in the army. I said, why not? He's like, oh, too many people tell me what to do. I said, yeah, you're right. Nobody tells you what to do in your job. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me funny. And then, you know, every I'd see him about every few days. And he'd ask, like, and, and it just kind of worked out really well. Because he'd always ask me, like, oh, so what'd you do at work today? You know, and it, at first it started out like with this hint of sort of derisive sarcasm. What did you do at work today? March all day? I was like, no, I spent all day jumping out of airplanes. What? Yeah. We woke up this morning. We flew down to Arizona. We jumped all day and we flew back. I grabbed a six pack on my way home and now I'm going to sit on my porch and watch the sunset over the mountains and drink it. What? Yeah. yeah. No. You know, a couple of days later, well, what did you do today? Well, I spent all day on the demo range blowing stuff up. What? Yeah. Like, all right, I spent all day shooting. I did this. I did that. And it really gives you an entirely different perspective. You know, for all the constraints of military service, I have been more free in my time in the military than most people can possibly imagine. I mean, I've driven the Silk Road. I've seen... I've seen 500 year old monasteries. I've, you know, I've met some of the most amazing people. Um, yeah, there's been heartbreak. There's been horror. There's been all sorts of stuff. I've bled, I've sweat, I've cried. But at the end of the day, you know, the career I had in the military is the most amazing thing that I can, I can't, it defies description. And you know, for those of you who are just starting out, for those of you who are still cleaning latrines and mopping the floor and or who are who are officer cadets or who are the the assistant officer in charge of, you know, urine sample collection in addition to all your other duties. And you're wondering why the hell you agreed to do this. Stick with it. It gets better. And quite frankly, the, the nation needs you way more than the nation believes that it does. It, you know, General Mattis just recently said, you know, stick to your guns. You know, the, the, eventually the country will sort itself out. And once, once they do, just stick to your gun. Um, it's a way better life than right now. You, PFC, who just got who had a crappy day at work and got yelled at by his you know squad leader and is spending the week you know spend this weekend cleaning toilets you know you brand new second lieutenant who didn't get the assignment you wanted and think the world is over i promise you it will get better and it is the most worth it thing you have you can imagine so that's that's what i would say um that's that's the story i would tell um 
you know, nobody. Uh, and I, and I think that's, that's, a, that, that's a better way to approach it than, you know, so there I was 10,000 feet and fallen fast, nothing between me and the earth, but a, but a thin blonde. I mean, nobody, nobody you know, that's, not, that's not what's important. What's important is, you know, Hey, you know, you, you know, kid who is frustrated by the fact that it's not all, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not all, you know, lap dances and unicorns, you know, just stick with it because it will get better. I'm glad you actually, you took that approach because that right there could have a, a, a positive impact on someone who's listening, you know, and they say, you know, he's right. And on, and I'll also add on to that is, not only does that apply to military service, but to almost anything in life. Um, yeah. And it's just kind of having that will to continue on and, and, like you said, stick with your guns. And that really, even when things, it just seems like, no, this is impossible. This is not going to work out, whether you're you're starting a business or, or anything. And um, it, it does get better, I think. And I, I, people just kind of have to be reminded of that once in a while. because you know, Life is hard enough with, with things that you go through. Some people are are born into difficult situations, and then some people experience, you know, difficulty throughout life. And um, I think it's it's good to have a reminder once in a while that things will work itself out if you stay the course. And um, and, and kind of speaking of Mattis, uh, General Mattis, do you think he's one of the people who kind of know really know what they're doing and understand the conflict, the nature of the conflict? Um, I don't know. Um, I want to say yes, based on his pacification of Anbar province in Afghan and Iraq. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I really don't know. I think that Mattis was an absolutely brilliant choice for secretary of defense. The only other job that I can really think of that might have been even better for him would have been national security advisor. But I think I, I would I want to say yes, but I again, I don't know General Mattis, General, you know, like I, I have I have never spoken to him. We have never had any conversation on any of these issues. And I'm not I was never in the Marines. So his decisions and his his policies never like I never had to implement them. Right. So it was a, you know, it was one of those things where I, I, I certainly would like to think so. And his pacification of Anbar province was by all, you know, was, was brilliant. Um, but you know, that he doesn't I, he doesn't have a special operations background that I'm aware of, but that doesn't really mean anything either. Like you don't you don't need to be a pilot to understand how an how you know how an airfoil works. You don't need to be a you know a a, a, a nuclear engineer to understand how you know that you're getting power in your house from a nuclear power plant. So you know I I realize I'm hemming and hawing about this, but. I, so I will. I'll just go to. I would really like to believe so. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, right. In in the the regards of uh, you need to 
well, cause people have opinions on things, right? So, you know, people talk about all kind of things and where they don't know necessarily know the person and that kind of thing. And, and, and I get it. And, um, but yeah, he, he does, in my opinion, I think he kind of, he appears to understand it to a, to an extent. And, and when you say the pacification of Ambar, are you referring to not only the, the military action taken there, but the, uh, what's kind of referred to as like the Ambar awakening? Um, yeah, de- I mean, definitely. And I think he, he handled it well, um, from the military perspective, you know, the, the, the conversation and, and I don't know, you know, this has all been blown. You know, the, the, the stories have, have gone around and around and around to the point that I, you know, it's, it's impossible to know what the actual facts of the matter were, but you know, I come in peace. I've brought no artillery and I'm begging you with tears in my eyes. If you fuck with me, I will kill you all. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's warrior diplomacy. Um, you know, that's and that's speaking to a group of people on a level that they understand, um, which is the biggest part of warrior diplomacy, of course. Um, so, you know, I, and and the bottom line is, is that until General Mattis got to Anbar, no one else on the American side of the argument was was able to make even a dent. Now. I don't, you know, that may just have been because nobody else was willing to look at these tribal leaders and say, I will kill you if you keep messing with me. Or, or what? Because again, I not present at any of these things. I have no visibility on it. So I don't know why the others were failing and why General Mattis succeeded. All I know is that everyone else failed and he succeeded. Right. Right, so you you just officially retired a couple of days ago, but that that process is kind of ongoing, right? It takes a couple of months, or I believe so. And uh, you you have what it appears to me to be like a passion, and and you're kind of working towards something. Can we talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I. I mean, I, 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 first of all, you know, you do 22 years doing what I've been doing. Like you need a little bit of downtime. Um, you know, I still enjoy training. You know, I like to go to the gym. I like to go to the range. I like to do all this stuff. Um, and right now I'm just kind of trying to get my feet on the ground to adjust to life within a society that has changed so dramatically since I stepped out of it. So I like getting out in the woods, man. I like loading up my truck and getting, you know, getting away and kind of finding some of that peace and finding, you know, it's, it's challenging myself in sort of a different way. You know, if you've never, if you've never taken a vehicle that you're still paying for and have to drive around every day on a fairly challenging off-road trail, then, you know, it's then then I, for those of you in that boat, I promise you it's a lot more challenging than you think because, you know, the, the consequences are much more dire than they are if it's some beater or, or whatever. So I, I enjoy doing that. And right now I'm just sort of focused on, you know, I'm getting I'm getting my foot in the door. 
but I, I love I love to teach, and I and I think that I have a lot of I think I have a lot of experience that I can that I can bring to bear that can you know can put me in a good position to help others out whether that's you know people who are just starting in their military careers or people who want to learn some of these skill sets you know or whether it's the you know you know looking at some of the like the nonprofit work and like um that that others in my lineage have done so i'm still i'm still kind of figuring it out but i know that i'm still I'm not I'm not 100 percent ready to put the gun belt down yet. I'm not ready for the the cardigan sweater and the rocking chair yet. Um, so I definitely have have a passion for doing these things. It's just, you know, right now I'm focused on kind of getting my feet on the ground. And and figuring out what direction I'm going to go and then. And then figuring out a way to kind of put all that stuff together, if that makes sense. Um, no, it, it does. It does. Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, it's a pretty big shift, I, you know, and I have to take my hat off to a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the, the guys that have gone before me that have, that have made these successful transitions and have started these companies and are doing, you know, are doing great things. Uh, you know, Aaron at, at gorilla approach and, uh, you know, you know, Lauren and Brian with, uh, you know, the stuff they're doing. Um, yeah. it's, it's just, it's just brilliant. Um, and so, you know, as I move forward and I start getting more ready to look into that for myself, I definitely want to, you know, reach out to those cats and see how they, you know, you know, see how they kind of got started. And, and, you know, again, there's no need, as we say often, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Um, right. You know, maybe, maybe I'll just put spinner hub hubcaps on mine. Who knows? Um, but, you know, I, I definitely I, I want to be. You know, I, I also I tend to look back to people who have gone before me in the transition. Um, a, lo a lot of times I, I tend to look back to the Office of Strategic Services and the Jeds and the OGs for. You know, my ideas on, you know, for, for concepts on how I want to be going forward. Um, now that my time in the sun is, is over. And, you know, I look at these dudes and these dudes were, you know, ambassadors and college professors yeah. and, um, you know, directors of central intelligence and, and all of these things. And I just, yeah. you know, I, at the end of the day, and this might sound a little corny, but when I, when I shake these guys' hands in Valhalla, I don't want to be embarrassed with with the person that they see in front of them. And so, you know, again, I'm not really prepared to to tell you specifically like, oh, hey, you know, look for me. I'll be at shot. Look for ah, da, 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 da. But I mean, there's there is there's more there's more stuff coming for me. Um, it's just a question of figuring out what what that's going to look like and how that how that's going to go. Um, and I know that may not be exactly you know, the, the answer you had in mind, but I, I, I can't give you any more specifics than that right now. I'm like, I'm looking at putting rock sliders and a roof rack on my truck and spending a few days up in the, up in the North woods, uh, my home state of Minnesota and taking in a gopher football game this weekend and, you know, and going and hopefully watching the, hopefully watching the Vikings stick it to the saints here in a few minutes. 
Oh yeah, that's coming up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, um, it, you know, it's it's um, you know, I I appreciate that kind of response because when I when I listen to you say that, it's demonstrating like you're you're kind of breaking down your thought process and and the way you you're looking at it, and I think the the part about um, where you're you're shaking hands with the guys who went before you, and you you want to kind of stand stand proud because obviously you serve, so you, you guys have that in common, and then you want to equally uh, affect and 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 stand proud post military. I mean, I, I think that's that's a great motivation, and for anyone listening, I, I hopefully you can take uh, some lessons from that in regards to how you want to move forward in life, right? Like you, you need some type of motivation. And I, I think looking back at history and it, it's something that I do myself, you know, so it's, I kind of feel you on that. I, I think the way you go about things is, you know, as important as the end result. I don't know if that makes any sense. It absolutely does. Um, you know, there, there's an argument to be made for the ends justify the means. And, and and that may be true in certain circumstances and in certain, you know, certain events. But if you build your life on that, I think you're going to find that You won't be, you won't be the, the person looking back at you in the mirror. Won't be the person that you want to be looking back at you in the mirror. And um, you know, it's it's one thing to justify that in your mind if it's a you know some one specific instance. But if you know, it it matters how you got to where you're at. It may not matter to others, but you you can lie to everybody in the world. You can't lie to yourself. If you have to ask yourself, is this the right thing to do? Then the answer is almost certainly no, it is not. And so I'm, try, I'm you know, very much trying to keep that in mind also. And honestly, just to kind of keep, to sort of keep the faith, you know, I mean, you you spend a long time doing something where there's a very there's a path for you and yeah you have a certain amount of 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 self control over how you navigate that path or the way the directions you want that path to take you but at the end of the day it's all very structured and you know this and then you get spit out the ass end and you know you look around and the things that we in the service value and the things that we in the service have come to be taught are important. Nobody else really seems to care about, um, you know, for all the, Oh, thank you for your service. And it's, it, it, it can be, it can be a scary place on the outside. And so taking, you know, for those of you, just like I talked to people who are, um, 
who are, are just starting their careers or just contemplating or contemplating a military career. For, th- for those of you who are freshly out or are about to be out and maybe the world didn't align the way you thought it would, because Lord knows it didn't for me. I, I, I never for a second thought I wouldn't be walking away from the military without or thought I would be walking away from the military without a job in hand. Um, I never for a second believed that I, I, I truly believed when I was told that employers would come beating down my door to hire me. Um, and you know, in retrospect, it's like, that's ridiculous. No, they're not. Um, but you know, for those of you out there who are, getting towards the ass end of your career. Um, it's, you know, it's scary, but leap, leap in the net will appear. Don't make a hasty decision to get out, but by the same token, don't stay in just because you're, you know, don't stay in just because you're afraid to do something different. Get out, get yourself settled, figure out your direction, and then go. You know, in, in SF, we, we say all the time, you know, know your operational environment. Take the time to learn your operational environment once you get out. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, from all the conversations I have, I, I talk to a lot of different people uh, from your community your back your similar background and and um as you know i do a lot of reading on uh, history and uh, i believe you do as well i think almost everything that we go through except in some instances where there's newer technology and, and newer ways to do things all of these things have happened before in some way shape or form the information is out there for you to learn them or, or learn that I think um, applying some of those those skill sets and and or, or lessons that you've learned in your career, or for anybody who's getting out, and if you apply that to living as a civilian now, or trying to start a business, or or figure things out, I think you you will find that a lot of those things are required to be successful. I'm glad that you said some of the things you said. I think in, in terms of uh, kind of doing things for the right reason, I think that's important. I'll also say that uh, things like being happy and and appreciating where you're at in life, Because there are people who have achieved, you know, whatever their goal is, you know, they want to be a doctor or something and they do it and they find that there's something missing, you know, they're not exactly satisfied. So I feel like, at least for me, like I've, as human beings, we should continue to have an objective, figure out what we need to reach that objective and continue to seek and understand. And I feel like that way you're always learning and you're always growing. And I feel like that's something that needs to happen in order for you to feel like it's worth living. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're not, 
especially people that have spent time in the military, we're very goal oriented and, you know, having something that we're constantly working for. I mean, that, that's an important part of, of who we are. And it's important as a motivator to, you know, making ourselves the best version of ourselves we can be, whether that's chasing down a PhD or being able to squat a thousand pounds or, you know, what, whatever it is, it's something that gives us purpose in life. And, you know, purpose is one of those things that you, you just can't, th- th- there's no replacing it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, uh, and the, you know, the other thing is, and, and this is kind of to everybody, don't, don't expect it to be easy all the time. Don't expect it to be fun all the time. You're allowed to be afraid. You're allowed to be frustrated. You're allowed to be, you know, everything. And you're going to be all of those things. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay on the first day that you're retired and you have no idea what to do to get shit faced. It's not okay to do that every day. Right. It's okay to be situationally depressed. It's okay to wonder what the hell you're going to do now. It's, but the, you know, and the, the thing about stuff like that, the thing about depression, the thing about, you know, the, the thing that drags people down, the, the biggest weapon that those feelings have is the, is convincing us that it's never going to get any better. And if you can, if you can realize that no matter what those feelings are telling you at the time, it will get better. Then you've you've won you've won ninety percent of the battle right there. Yep. So, just again, maintain your purpose. Maintain your, you know, figure take take the time to learn your operational environment. Get with it and then go for it. Yeah, man. It's it's the struggle. I mean, the struggle is like it's in our. Uh... It's in our fibers, you know. I mean, back in the day, everything that was done was a struggle. I'm talking like wake up in the morning and you have to hunt, you have to gather vegetables or whatever. Like life was was harder in the early earlier days of of existence, of human existence, and with the modernization of of uh, our society things have become much easier, right? You can just order food. You can go to the supermarket. You don't have to hunt your meat anymore. You can, uh, you know, everything is made available, readily available instantly. And I think that that takes away a lot of the struggle uh, that, that our ancestors went through, which in a way it could be a good thing, but it's in a way I feel like it also kind of makes people lazy in, in, in certain regards. And I think being lazy can, can then certain lessons about life kind of go over your head and, uh, things that 
you would notice if you were really working hard and, and working towards your goal or, or living the dream, so, uh, so to speak, uh, you, you kind of miss it completely. So, um, you know, it, it's just something to think about, right? Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Yeah, man. So, uh, so, you know, I had a good time doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you came on the podcast. Uh, you know, I appreciate you taking out the time to do this. Um, you know, oh, absolutely. Like yeah. I said, you know, congratulations on your retirement. Wish you much success. And if you need anything, you know, that I can help with, just let me know, man. And also, if you want to come back on the podcast, uh, let me know as well. I'd be happy to have you. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. That would be great. Um, you know, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I uh, really, you know, I enjoy your podcast. I really, you know, I like what, I like what you're doing. You know, I think, I think you have a lot of people out there who are, who are paying attention to things only because they heard it from you. And that's, you know, it's important to keep people's eyes focused on what what's going on out there. And I think you give people a voice that they wouldn't, that they wouldn't otherwise have. And, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if me coming on, if I can, if I can provide to that voice, if I can, you know, help pass some of the knowledge that, you know, that I've accumulated over my time in the service and my time on planet earth, and it, it can help somebody else, whether it's someone just starting their career or just ending it or in the middle of it or whatever, then that's, then I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. Awesome, man. Yeah, once again, thank you for coming on, and uh, thank you for your service as well. Of course, brother. Leffler will be coming on a little more often uh, to co-host some episodes and bring you guys some tangible information, uh, things that will help you uh, survive a little better in in certain situations or things that will help improve your day-to-day life. As he spent uh, 20 years in the United States Army, the majority of that in special forces and um you know just give you guys things that you can really use to help you with your travels and, and things like that so be on the lookout for left uh, to be on the podcast a little more as always i encourage you guys to subscribe uh, to the podcast on itunes leave us a review uh, itunes is for the apple users iphones and we have SoundCloud for Android users on SoundCloud. Just search Global Recon Podcast. Uh, leave us a review. Uh, download it. Share it with your friends and family. And that way we'll know that you guys are appreciating what we're doing and we need to continue these efforts to bring you good quant- uh, good content each week. My website is www.globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. Chantel Taylor, my co-host, her military account is Mission underscore Critical. Uh, she wrote a very good book called Battle Worn, The Memory of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. Check it out. Available anywhere books are sold. The easiest place is probably Amazon. Uh, and check out uh, Leffler on Instagram at forerunner dot so that's for the number four runner dot f r e y j a, and he's posting pretty consistently on there. 
Uh, you know, anything he's got going on, you can keep up with him there. All right, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace.